Hey guys, this is Rob from Murmur. A couple of things before you listen to this episode. If you like listening to Murmur Radio and we love bringing it to you, go to the iTunes store and write us a review. It can be one sentence, it can be a paragraph, it can be more or less. Give us a review. I'm told iTunes reviews help, so it would be a really great help to us if you could uh, give us a, a review on iTunes. won't take more than a minute. Thank you so much. We love bringing you the show and we love our audience, so thank you. The other thing is Audible. Do you love listening to your favorite books and magazines, TV shows, and podcasts? Of course you love listening to podcasts. That's what they're there for. Here's an idea. FreeAudibleTrial.com backslash Murmur. You can get a free month of Audible just for listening to Murmur. Again, FreeAudibleTrial.com backslash Murmur. Get a free month because you like the show. You're going to want to keep subscribing. It's a really great service. I listen to it all the time. I like to take long drives with the dog. Listening to Audible is one of my favorite things to do. He likes it too. I don't know how. I just know. That's the way it is. FreeAudibleTrial.com backslash Murmur. Thank you so much. And now quiet on the set. Quiet on the set. Quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studio of WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, the state of writing genre. Creator, showrunner, writer, Ronald D. Moore is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robin Malazzo here with you. Weekly live, whupfm.org. But we are evergreen, forever young. Unfortunately not, but kind of. <laughs> Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher. We also have a website, murmurradio.com. We have social handles. Twitter, Instagram, at MSF Murmur. We also have Facebook. If you go to our website, murmurradio.com, you will see at the top of the page a button. I think it's called a button. Is that a technical term? It says, don't click here. Well, ignore that. Click there. Click there. And when you click there, you'll see something new for us. It says, do you have a murmur? Meaning, if there is a topic or an idea or a piece of information or something you'd like us to feature on the show, we will do that. And we will credit you. We will give you full credit and we'll match a guest to it. So if you say, I want to know more about how pheasants have changed uh, the state of poetry... I will find, if I can't find a pheasant, which is entirely likely, I will find a poet or, you know, something in that alchem alchemic state. <laughs> so anyway, uh, welcome back to Murmur. Really excited to have you here with us. Ronald D. Moore is with us today. Ron is a really prolific and... Uh, revered creator. It's, you know, there used to be a time when you would call, when you would think a producer, you know, Ron's also a producer, he's also an executive producer, he's a showrunner, 
showrunner is really the king or queen of the show that you see, the TV show. And he's also a producer. There was a time when producer meant something rather tepid. Uh, I think now it's an important title, but it's it's frankly, as even as I said this, it's not a it's not a job title I use for people like Ron. I think creator. He is a creator. He creates content. I think con- t- content creator is a really cool title. I think we're creating content. Ronald uh, is a really fascinating, creative, groundbreaking. I think content creator writer today we wanted to talk to him about the state of writing genre we like to do our uh the state of uh, at least once every four three to four episodes to ask someone in to assess kind of the larger photograph of a topic so today we want to do several on i want to do several on writing today i want to look at writing genre so we'll cover tv and film so what is genre genre when you say the word genre to someone who works in film or likes film or or watches film or all of the above, they will their mind goes to a place of it's a precise stylistic contribution into the genre of moving images, TV or film, wherein you know there there's all genre has sub sub intimations the sub intimations meaning horror a western you know again comedy but to me comedy is a different church not in the same church different pew it's simply in a different church it's in a different county although you can have a sci-fi piece or a horror piece with comedy and then what does it become so rather than carve up the stake for too many ways we'll call it genre meaning stylized and have him define it have ron define it and, and he may say no such thing he may say genre is the height of the form i just think this word genre is a cool word it's one of the few words that i like to still hold on to that are artifacts of when i first started thinking and talking and watching film and tv mostly film admittedly I look at it now that genre is anything that won't be retrofitted into a documentary form anytime soon. Now, you can say a show like The Wire or, uh, you know, Hill Street Blues. Uh, were, were these were these genre entries? Well, their cops are genre. So today we're going to start on a bigger tent level genre. Over the weeks, we're going to chisel down a little more. We may look at the state of writing for police and cop drama. We may look at the state of writing comedy. I mean, that's my goal. But today, with someone like Ron, who his work tends to be sort of these really cool, fun Frankensteinian monster uh, entries into the canon. Uh, so I thought, let's start. Let's start on a higher view, a higher kind of and telescope down as we go, or take little side paths but Ron you know I don't know where we're, we're gonna go with it one thing I do want to get his take on is superhero content creation superhero fiction I think that's the word genre equals fiction you know a documentary is non-genre a genre is not contaminated by the G of genre there are are documentaries that tell a story within a certain precinct, but I don't think of those as genre. So genre are are works of fiction. I go a little deeper. I think most people who commune with the word genre think in terms of the style, the high style. From a filmmaking perspective, Ron is not a filmmaker, but from a filmmaking perspective, I think storytelling and genre and genres is is some of the richest uh not only ways to make a living but early practicing i think every young filmmaker should make a horror film 
I, I think every young filmmaker would benefit because, you know, if we look at Hitch as probably the ultimate genreist, although we don't think of him that way, you know, uh, the aptitude of stimulation accessed in a Hitchcock film or a horror film will prepare any creator, any film creator or TV creator for anything that comes afterwards. Today, though, not a filmmaker's journey, a writer's journey, more mainstream are genre works that sound like Yoda. <laughs> genre works, genre efforts, and Ron started in the Star Trek universe on a tour of, of Star Trek. Uh, see how much of his backstory we want to cover today. He can cover it on his own, but essentially took a tour of, I don't know if it was a tour of a studio and got a script to Gene Roddenberry's assistant who then re focused Ron's script and inquiry to agents. And then anyway, Ron Moore ended up, Ronald ended up writing episodes of Star Trek for many years and different parts of the franchise and the features. So that's where he cut his teeth. Pretty cool teeth cutting institute, <laughs> the Gene Roddenberry Clinic for higher learning <laughs> and genre writing. <laughs> but it's funny, on Star Trek, you know, the writers are, are, aside from the characters who are the gods, if the characters of Star Wars are the gods, the demigods are the writers. We have a writer today, no better resource for genre writing than Ronald D. Moore. Really excited. Ron's a rigorous thinker and eloquent about what he does. So let's get to it. Oh, first this. Welcome to the table read of Battlestar Galactica. Let's go around uh, and, and, and um, introduce ourselves, of, sure. of course. Ronald D. Moore. Hey. Hey. Uh, I am Doug. I am Claire. Uh, James Callis, uh, really stoked to reprise the role of Guys Baltar. Nice, nice to be here. Nice to see Ron. Um, Ken Reynolds, local actor, currently appearing as the Mad Hatter. This is not Ron D. Moore. Just go with it, go with it. Doesn't matter. Edward James almost. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. Ron, 15 minutes. I want those people out of my house. Yeah, sure. Bye, Ron. They better be out when I get there. Hey, look, guys, we're going to have to hurry this up. My wife, Renee, is going to be home in 15 minutes coming from church. So let's get this reading on. We open on the interior of Galactica's Combat Information Center where we see Admiral Adama. Now we have to find another planet. Somebody give me a report. With all due respect, Admiral, are you sure you're doing the right thing? I command because I have the discipline to command. Listen, I have something to say. Go ahead, talk. Okay, but you need to listen to me because I... Why just repeating hey, myself? Hey, look, guys, clock's ticking. We got to get this done and get it over with. position now. Did you hear me? Now. Look, Adama goes like this. Now, now, now. Just a, it's a it's boiling inside you. Starbuck enters angrily. Where the hell have you been? Flying the freak all over the place. It's frack. 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 Yeah. You've not seen the show? No. Can, just, can we get on with you? Sorry, yeah, you let's have get on to with see it. it. Let's let's see. See. Yeah. Is it good? Please. I need you here. Now get out of here. What? I don't have time for this. Yeah, come on, guys. We really don't have time. We've got to get this on the road. No, we meant that's in the script. That's his line. Why are you doing this? That is none of your concern. Long beat. You have a line there. I'm out of here. Oh, come on. No, I'm please sorry. don't go. Please, go. Please, Mr. Almost. Please, please. You can't, you can't keep doing the lines. Thank you. Mr. Almost, please don't leave. Please, please. please. We, we need you to stay. We have more lines for you. We have more of the script. The episode's almost over. I have to go. There's even a saying. When you have nothing to lose, the only direction to go is forward. Because then, even if you have everything to lose, we can still move. You said that. Episode six, season two. You gotta be careful. Psychologically. It's television. Please, it, it means everything to us. I mean, she lost her job. We lost our lives watching the show. I've never been in space. Ever. Guys, I've got an idea. Something we could all do together to relax, you know. Are you familiar with Doctor Who? See what I mean? Well, there's actually like another 26 seasons. You mean we can watch another one? 
Well, if we're all up for it, I don't know if it's everybody. Yes, we do. One more, one more. Right. One more episode. We are in a triple platinum age of uh, creative writers, thoughtful uh, practitioners. And one of the areas of, of the practice I, I love, because I'm a bit of a nerd in this way, is, is the G word, uh, genre writing. Is there such a thing? Well, in my mind as a fan there is, but let's talk to someone who would know. Ironically, for a guy who studied poli-sci, uh, a different type of sci has been his um, bread and butter, um, sci-fi and other uh, other rich genres that writing uh, can offer us. We are honored to have with us one of the big brains and the great thinkers of writing in the modern age to talk about the state of genre writing, Mr. Ronald D. Moore. Uh, Ron, thanks for being on Murmur Man. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So admit it, you're curled up in your basement. You just watched Game of Thrones. You had a party, and now you don't know what to do with the rest of your life. Is that pretty much the picture? Isn't that everyone's Monday morning? (laughs) You're just wiping the sleep out of your eyes. You're in a kilt, though. I think that's the difference between you and I. I think you're in a kilt right now. Yeah, Um, I have have a kilt as my go-to morning gear. (laughs) Talk to me about this G word. Um, You know, we had the G spot. We haven't figured that out. But talk about genre writing. Is there such a thing as genre writing? Not really. I mean, it's it's just it's it's one of those odd labels that is just sort of stuck, you know, down through the years. It used to be sci-fi writing, and then they sort of that sort of passed out of fashion. And genre is now the term, and it it encompasses a pretty wide range of things. I mean, there's classic science fiction, you know, like say Star Trek is genre, but also Game of Thrones, which is obviously, you know, fantasy. And people usually throw genre around when they're talking about horror as well. Right, so right. those are three pretty distinct categories in my mind, but they all kind of fall under the rubric of, of genre these days. So I don't think there's really anything as genre writing. It's you can be writing in those particular genres, but you know, my experience is that you know, good writers can adapt and good writers, you know, are sort of able to 
customize what they're doing to the to the genre that they're working in, and it doesn't really, you know, some writers have a greater affinity for science fiction maybe than they do for, I don't know, period romance or something, but it, I don't think it's a, a particular kind of writing. I think it's just sort of a, a mindset that you get into and you try to expand your your uh, you know your creativity in a certain direction and understanding the the rules of that universe and the the the, the parameters of what you're able to do. You know, it's become a kind of cocktail party word genre because people, you know, don't sound as classy talking about I love horror films or I love westerns. You know, there was a time when, but I think genre has become like the handle on the suitcase, and it may, as you say, be sort of a firm grasp of the obvious. Um, but but then let's look at it from, from a different perspective. Let's look at it from a craftsperson perspective, as your perspective would be. Uh, what is the appeal in writing in forms that aren't based in the tactility of day to day? I'm trying to reshape the the word. You know, I'm trying to reshape the question so we don't yeah. use the word genre. But in in, in yeah. using it's okay. Yeah, in getting away from the workaday world, what is what is the the pull for you as a craftsperson um, to write in forms that you don't see in your everyday life as such? Well, I think it's just that it's it's it widens the imagination and, and your sense of you know what could be you know writing as they say is a big game of if, and when you're writing in these genres you know the the game of if is even bigger you know what if there were zombies what if you lived on another planet what if Hitler hadn't died what right. what if technology took us down a certain path what if Donald Trump was president <laughs> what if, oh now sorry we're definitely in a horror category. <laughs> Horror documentary. Anyway, sorry, man. Go on. No, no, no. I think it's just that. I think it's it's appealing to that part of uh, writing where you you really want to stretch and you really want to challenge things and you really want to mix, especially on the on the level of world building. You know, if you're doing a a show or a book or a film about today and about our contemporary reality, you know, it's all around you. It's right there. Your job is to maintain fidelity to the world as it exists. But if you're doing a science fiction piece or you're doing a, a fantasy piece, you have to create a world. And that's really kind of fun for those of us who enjoy that work. It's, it's really fun to sort of build the what ifs on top of each other. What if there are dragons in this world? What mm -hmm. if there's a limited amount of magic, but not magic accessible to everyone else? What if spacecraft had been able to get to the nearest star, but there are, there's a downside to using the engine technology and you just keep expanding this idea of what these worlds look like and that's just a lot of fun you know it's just really an interesting and creative process when you're literally creating an entire universe with rules that you're making up and then the challenge of course is to tell a story and draw characters that operate within that world and that you can hold those rules you know, uh, consistently and successfully. Speaking with Ronald E. Moore, um, let's do a little psychoanalysis. <clears throat> I'm sure you're looking forward to this. What about, you, we just had Gerard Way on the show, and Gerard was talking about being a Dungeons & Dragons kid. I know you've talked about loving Star Trek as a kid. What were some of your early calls as a creator, as a kid? Were you, were you watching sci-fi films or westerns, movies, TV, nonwithstanding? Were you drawn to that as a child? Yeah, I mean, I, I my entree into science fiction was actually through the real life uh, American space program because I, when I was a, a very young kid, the the Apollo missions were still happening, and I, you know, I was fascinated with them, and I watched the launches, and I watched the landings, and the coverage, and you know, drew pictures of spaceships, and read all the things that I could as a little kid, you know, picture books and so on that were about the Apollo missions. And then that led me into, well, is there something on TV with spaceships? And, oh, there's Lost in Space. And so I got into Lost in Space, and that eventually led me to Star Trek. And then it just kind of opened up the world of spaceships and science fiction in general. Then you start looking for books, and then you start discovering the movies. And, you know, it just it became a, a fascinating world that I just wanted to know more and more about and that I wanted to kind of live in and that I wanted to tell stories about and just, you know, I just never lost its hold on me. You were also an athlete in high school, right? So I, I, I'm, I'm, again, I'm imprinting this on you. Were you extroverted or introverted? I only ask that because, you know, then I'm thinking of the sci-fi of it all or the, the, the creation of it all. Were you creating these worlds? Were you play acting? Did you ever want to be an actor? Was that part of, you know, did you want, so part of you wanted to manifest this stuff. I mean, and where what was the guide for making it manifest? Were you, did you write short stories as a kid? What, what gave you the allowance to sort of take a love and manifest it? 
Uh, I did play act and, and uh, write stories as a little kid. I mean, I, I, my mom has carefully <laughs> kept a, a book, I suppose a book I wrote when I was like in third grade, which was, you know, not that long, but it was basically an illustrated story of me and my dog taking a trip to Disneyland and crazy <laughs> things happen. But I like telling stories on the playground. You know, I would make up stories to entertain my friends just you know which is another word for lies i would tell them giant you know <laughs> yarn lies about what i did over the summer that usually involved in crazy adventures and this and that and they kind of get a kick out of it and i like being that kid and yeah i was sort of a, an introvert extrovert combination because i was i was quiet kid and you know i had a, a very strong internal world and i liked to read books and i liked to sort of be by myself but i was also it was a small town and you tended to participate in just about everything that was going on. And my father was a former high school football coach. So he definitely propelled me into, into the sports world growing up. And, you know, a lot of all my buddies were on the sports team. So I ran track and little league and played football and did all those things. And I was in the marching band and, you know, I did all kinds of stuff because you could in a little town in California, which was called Chowchilla, which is up by Fresno. You, you basically could participate in anything you wanted because there just weren't that many students. So I had a pretty interesting, you know, well-rounded kind of life experience as I, I look back on it, even though I was, at, a, at my core, I was a bit of a geek or a nerd, even though those terms didn't have the cachet in those days that they do now. <laughs> they couldn't get you laid back then. Maybe now they... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the other G word. Yeah, geek. Well, it's interesting, and I want to kind of bury it back into craft a little bit. You know, I was thinking, and your, your work does such an expert job of this, man, and, and the Bible you wrote for uh, Battlestar Galactic uh, is legion and should be read by writing students and beyond fans, and I think that's where your work really exceeds that you 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 speak multiple languages and it's funny again as I end my pop psychology for the day it's funny speaking with the jocks and speaking with the non-jocks those are two different languages and it sounds like you've been that bilingual guy do you feel that serves you well now I mean is that overthinking it or I when I when I watch your work I think this is a man who can speak multiple languages human languages is that part and parcel to the value is does that help writing uh, I mean, I couldn't I see how does, I couldn't see know, how it would hurt it, but does it help it? I think it I think it helps. I mean, I don't know if I've ever thought of it in that exact way, but you know, when you put it that way, it does sort of ring true. Because I, I, yeah, I could function with the the football team and the track team and hang out with the jocks and all that, but I was also part of the marching band, and and then I had this interior quiet life at home. And what that helps me with today, I guess, in my current job is. You know, the, the athletics really taught me the value of teamwork, which is, you know, the cliche, but it's hard to really overstate it. There was right. something about being in a competitive organization that was, you know, physical and that demanded you to, to go out there and do something that you didn't really want to do and to hit people and to, to take a hit and to plan things and get up, even though you might be hurt and do it again that did instill a certain, a certain toughness, you know, on some basic level that sort of builds part of your character being the marching band gave me a sense of professionalism. Our particular band director took that organization very seriously. We won a lot of trophies and awards and had a long history of like performance, you know, in that little town and mental and meant something. And I carry with me today as a showrunner, a sense of, you know, imparting a sense of professionalism and a sense of mission to what, you know, we're all trying to do together, and I draw yeah. on both of those experiences. Well, I think you're tiptoeing into it really in an interesting way with what you're saying, because I'm thinking of actually production, too. You know, I don't know, and I don't want to litigate this with you, but I don't know if you read the recent, uh, some of Frank Darabont's uh, emails to his crew and staff were unearthed recently. Uh, yeah, so They were rough, man. I would imagine it helps you understand the whole ship of the thing, you know, how the production is going to work with the demands of the writer and, and the team. Or or is that, do you have to beta block that? I ask that because my next question is genre writing for beginners. Do you have to beta block your imagination with the practical elements or, or, or do you just sort of damn that? And you're in a different stage now in your career, but have you been able to do that well 
oh, I want to write this thing, but the effects people have to carry it out. How much of that left brain, right brain goes into everything you do, or are there different times and places for everything? I, I kind of feel like you have to use them both, but I, I, I tend to lead with uh, the, the creative impulse first, and, and, I, and it's a struggle, and I, and I do kind of have to impose this on the writer's room sometimes, where I say, you know, don't second guess yourself. Think big. We can always pull it back later. Right. The, the most important thing is to make the story work. Let's figure out, let's make the story work and then we'll figure out how we produce it. Because in my experience, you can always bring things down. You know, you can write it too big, you can write it too expansive and it becomes unproducible. And then you just sit down and that's where the other part of your brain is. You sit down, you look at it analytically and you say, okay, let's try We have too many scenes. Let's cut some of these scenes. Okay. This is too big on the special effects. What's a different way of doing that? You know, can we reduce some of these characters? Can, do we need that location? How about if we combine these two scenes? So you can start to like, you can take any piece of material and make it producible through the rewrite process. You know, and the trick there is you don't want to like suck the life and destroy the thing that you've just created. Right, right. So that's, is where you have to have experience and you have to keep an eye on what is the intent of this piece and make sure that you never lose sight of that. But I do think it's a mistake when writers just second guess themselves from the beginning, when they're afraid to throw out an idea or they're afraid to start down a path because they feel like, oh, but we'll never be able to produce that. I just think yeah. you've got to, it drives production crazy, but so what? You have to like just write that first draft and then we'll figure out how to make it. Yeah, writing and editing at the same time is a bitch. and You don't want to do it because then you just cock block yourself. But again, you don't want to oh, yeah. overdo, you know that because you've been through this mill a thousand times, but you don't want to overdo that. But I, but it does, it is a gateway into the next question for beginners, you know, let's say the uninitiated in terms of the world of production, the uninitiated in terms of the business of making, of creating something that they write, how much of that do you, do you put none of that in their writing? Do you literally say to a young writer, write the world, literally write, just go, 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 go. Or do you get, how much of that that the glass ceiling comes in for a young unknown writer, because I'm sure you're getting people coming up to you at comic cons and at coffee shops and in Turkish baths and saying, I have this script, uh, forget the Turkish baths part. You know what I'm saying? So when you, do you want mm -hmm. them to just write their imagination or do you want to say, Hey, is it producible? I'm talking about people who are, have no foothold in the business. Well, how would you encourage them either way? Well, I think you got to start with write your imagination. I think your first draft has got to be, the biggest and the best version of the story that you can possibly do. Get that out of the way and, and, and make it the best you can. And then, you know, you got to take a breath and just walk away from it for a little while. And then you got to look at it and try to figure out, is this even remotely producible? Am I going to turn this in and they're going to think I'm insane or that I don't even understand the basics of television or, or film, you know, and, they have you have to be willing to then do another draft that feels more producible, even if it's still too big. It's okay that it's too big. No one's going to criticize a, a new writer, especially a new writer, for something that's too big. They will if it feels just like preposterous. Mm. So, you know, the, the 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 new writer has to gain at least enough practical knowledge to know the difference between the two, to understand that what I've given them, yet yeah, they're all going to say, hey, this is too big, but they still like it, and they can see how this can be turned into something for film or television. But if I turn in something preposterous, then yeah, then I haven't done myself any good, and I've done myself some harm. So you have to have at least that much knowledge you know, as you go forward. As homework for the young writer, is it helpful to watch what's been done before? What is the homework then for those young writers? I think it's, you know, if they want to do this for some reason, they've been inspired by something, you know, they, they, they want, if they want to write for film or TV, it's because they like film and TV. So, you know, I, I think they just have to continue watching and learning, you know, the, the material and the homework is all there to be had. Yeah. It's just, you know, understanding how to translate, you know, the page to the screen, you know, and if you really look at any, any movie that you really like, you know, no matter how big and crazy it was or small and low budget, was done on a particular set of constraints and you can figure that out. If you really look at it, you can kind of see where, you know, that most, most of the time people are in rooms talking. That's what the vast majority of, of scenes are, are people in rooms talking and then they walk outside and then they get in vehicles and then action happens. And you can kind of get a general, you know, thumbnail view of the industry pretty quickly. If you really kind of step back and look at the general 
way these things are constructed. And then you just look at your own, you look at the thing that you've written or that you want to write. Okay, you know, how, how would this become, you know, an actual script? How would this become an actual uh, movie? You don't have to get it perfect. You don't have to, like, count. I don't believe in, like, counting scenes and counting, you know, pages and of classic movies and then applying that to your own because there's no real template i think that's useful i think people are still looking for imagination they're looking for inspiration when they sit down and read a script and they don't expect it to be production ready nobody in this town reads a script with the idea that oh and this hopefully this one will be just ready to go in front of the camera they all know it's going to need work what they want to see is do you have chops how quickly do you know that in, in a piece of material if the writer has the chops in the first, you know, 10, 15 pages, you can get a pretty good idea. I mean, uh, Rare is the one where you, you're you sort of dragging through the first 15 pages and then suddenly the script jumps to life. <laughs> and sometimes, some, sometimes the plot jumps to life. Sometimes you're going, I'm not sure why they spent 15 pages on this, but within those first 15, you can usually tell if they're good. You can usually go, wow, this is really re- well written. I'm not sure why he's spending all this time on this particular scene and, and like, oh, the story didn't really start going till page 35. But wow, I was already like drawn in. He's, he's a good writer or she's a good writer. You know, I could see that. They just didn't sort of, you know, structure the story correctly. Mm. Uh, speaking with Ronald Moore, uh, Ron, in Act 2 a little bit, um, I want to talk a little bit about the watching of, of, again, I'll use the word lowercase g, genre-based content. You know, we joked about Game of Thrones. This stuff is now becoming pablum, you know, high-concept shows. There used to be a time when sci-fi was, oh, right, just Star Trek. Why do you think it's moved closer, for lack of a better term, to the, to the center? And again, if we call genre anything that won't be turned into a documentary anytime soon, like Veep, you know, or The Wire, why can you talk about this stuff at, at, at cocktail parties now? What what was the game changer? Do you think what, was it Star Trek? Well, I think there's a you know there's, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. I think you know one is just technological change over the years has made all the genre pieces look much more realistic and more like real things. You know, back when Star Trek when the original Star Trek was on the air, that was the leading edge of of visual effects on TV and special effects you know on the stage and what you could possibly do. And it was a little rickety, you know, there were still rubber monsters and, you know, the walls would vibrate once in a while. And (laughs) people could still kind of look at it and dismiss it as something silly if they weren't listening to it. You know, the original Star Trek had a lot of big ideas and really thoughtful episodes and it was an amazing program. But it was easy to kind of like look at it, go, ah, they're running around in silly pajamas and the bridge looks fake and those aren't real rocks. Move as time moves on both the way of making it in front of the cameras and behind the cameras has changed to the point where we can accept these realities now where Mm. you can, you can actually believe that a place like Westeros exists. You can believe in the Marvel universe that these people can do all kinds of amazing things. You know, if you think back to when the first Christopher Reeve Superman movie came out in 79, I think the tagline of that movie was you will believe a man can fly. Yep. Because that was like how low the bar was. It was just, <laughs> can you just believe he's going to fly? And that would, and it packed theaters, man. Yeah, People yeah, were like blown yeah, away by it. Yeah. He can fly. I really believe he's flying. Yeah. You know, and now we're at the point where we can believe almost anything. So the audience can now accept that as a reality instead of it feeling hokey or silly or obviously fake, you know, which always distances the audience from the drama. Now they can really actually accept this as a real world. The other thing is, you know, I think the American audience in particular and probably audiences worldwide have always liked the idea of leaving their reality for some other reality, yeah. to living in another place. That's as age-old as cinema, Indian. yeah. That's as age-old as cinema. It is. Escapism, yeah. In America, it used to be the Western. Right. You know, it was the Western for essentially from the silent era well into the 60s and the 70s, the Western was the other place that we wanted to spend all of our time. Right. We wanted to imagine it. We wanted to be there. We pictured ourselves in it. We dressed up in it. It, it dominated the television landscape for yeah. literally decades like no other genre did. Gunsmoke, and then Wild Wild West, I mean, a title I know that, that you've connected with. Yeah. And yeah. now the science fiction, fantasy, and superhero genres have supplanted that. And that's where we like to spend our time. So I, I feel like it's just kind of an extension of a natural impulse. Why is TV doing it so well? And when I say it, I mean 
again the lowercase g genre um why or is or is it doing it as well as cinema where's the home the optimal home for genre creation well tv is you know tv has a lot of advantages you know part partly has a different economic model even though our budgets in tv are now much bigger than they used to be and there's more money in television it's still dwarfed by the amount of money that they'll spend on say the avengers or any of the, the the serious tentpole feature franchises, and, you know, TV can't really compete with features just in terms of spectacle. So it doesn't really try. The other advantage that uh, television has is that you have multiple hours, and TV viewing has changed over the last couple decades. You know, when we were doing Star Trek, the the format was episodic, and the networks insisted pretty much that each show had to be standalone, have no connection to to the, the episode that preceded it or that followed it, unless you wrote primetime soap like Dynasty or Dallas. But pretty much the whole TV landscape was episodic because that was the only way it could be consumed. V, you know, VHS recording at home never really caught fire. People did it in limited ways, but people didn't really binge episodes in the same way that they do now. So before the coming of streaming and, the DV, and DVD and the DVR, Television was consumed on an episodic basis. Once that changed, TV suddenly exploded because of serialized storytelling. You have Sopranos, and you have, you know, the Six Feet Under, and you have the shows of, of the early you know, of the '90s and into the 2000s. And Battlestar was one of those where we started really pushing to do more serialized storytelling and became a more immersive form. Audiences started to love watching multiple episodes and really getting involved in these characters' lives. And it allows the viewer to sort of get a deeper dive into any particular relationship that they're watching, any particular yeah. character, yeah. you know, and you can really immerse yourself in that world. Whereas in the feature film, it's two hours and, it, and, and you're done. Do you think people listen better to TV? Is the contract for the audience listen to this more, more succinct in TV than film? Does that help the writer as well? That the contract is when you're watching something on TV, you better listen because it's not mm. it's not ocular, it's not an ocular demand in the same way. Or is that overstating it? I'm not sure about that because in a, in a real, I, I kind of find almost the opposite in some ways. Because when you go to a theater, you're pretty much there. You know, yeah. you can't hit pause. Right. You're not supposed to talk. You're not supposed to be at your phone. You. This is you know a it's real time. You're here. It, and you're done for two hours, and you're, you you know you have to sort of pay attention to this giant image that is in front of you. When you're at home, it's really easy to be distracted. Yeah, you know, yeah. everything from just hitting pause for a bathroom break that stretches into two hours, to you know the the cats are in the room or somebody's talking to you, and just there's so many distractions. And in some ways, it is harder to sort of maintain deeper focus at home than in, in, in television. Do you think about that as a writer? Is that is Or is that just uh, a neurosis you just can't go to when you write? I, I ignore that. I mean, you get that note from studios and networks a lot where they're saying, you know, people aren't usually, they're doing a lot of things. They're on a lot of different devices when they're watching the show. So you've <sighs> got to make it clear. You don't want to confuse them. And I always ignore that. It's like, I don't care if I confuse them, make them pay attention. It's like I'm telling the story the way I want to tell the story. And if they don't want to watch it, they don't have to. What a but, lazy note. You know, I'm not going to dumb it down just to keep your attention. That's a lazy note. Uh, last act of our talk. You haven't done as many feature films. Is film writing not as interesting? Is it is it a functionality of the attrition of it and the place of the screenwriter versus the writer who's a showrunner? Why has TV been more of an allure? Aside from the content <clears throat> reasons, are there architectural reasons why writing for TV has taken more of your fancy than writing for film? And to wit, is film writing something you want to explore more as you go? Uh, I would like to do more film writing, but I find the feature film industry very frustrating and yeah, not very satisfying. It's, it's, hard, it's very hard to get movies made. I mean, TV, everyone will tell you, yeah, it's hard to get shows made and get pilots picked up and get picked up to series and you know, have it six aid when it's on the air. But if you contra contrast that with the featured film business, it's so much easier. You know, we get, you go in and you pitch a network on an idea, they're going to come back to you in a week or so with a yes or a no. You know, and within a couple of months, you'll know whether this is a project you're going to do because somebody's picked it up and somebody wants to do it or nobody does and you should move on to the next thing. And in features, you can just spend forever you can spend there are so many stories of movies that are like a decade or more in the making of just trying to get the funding of just 
being in perpetual turnaround at the studios who ask for draft after draft after draft of the same idea. And then they want to, then they get into the writer carousel where they're going to bring in someone to rewrite your script because this is the, the comedy writer. And then you've got the action writer and you've got the character writer. And for whatever reason, the feature film business has sort of, you know, embraced the idea that the writers are interchangeable and you just bring one on because you're making your script. There's like 10 guys lined up behind you. And you just know that you're going to get kicked off this project at some point and they're going to bring in the next guy. And it just sort of sucks all the fun out of it. You know, why do I want to do that? Why do I want to just be one in a chain? You know, I mean, what I enjoy is being there through the process and having a say in the process and, you know, sort of seeing it through to fruition. And in the feature world, the director is king. It's just the way it's, it's worked out. It's the way it always has been. And that's fine. But in TV, the writer producer is king. And I kind of like to be the king. I kind of like to control the, the vision of the product. And I kind of like, you know, saying this is the, this is what we're trying to do. And I want to see it all the way through to the end. And I just don't have that opportunity in, in features. So well, I just tend to spend my time in TV. Well, then would it be a juicier carrot on a stick to do a movie if you were given the director's keys and final cut? I mean, or is that oh, kind sure. of a no duh? Yeah. Yeah. No, that would be great. Yeah, that 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 would absolutely be be great but you know that's they don't hand those keys out very very often and it, and still it still takes forever to do it yeah, you know yeah. you're going to shoot uh, there's a part when i was doing the trek movies and the mission impossible movie you know you spend a year or two of your life working on this one script yeah. this 120 some odd page script and at a certain point i'm really sick of it <laughs> i don't really <laughs> want to keep working on this same story yeah. i'm used to a, a job where i'm working on you know 13 or 14 sometimes 20 of these things in a year and i like the pace of tv and mm -hmm. i like on to the next story let's keep moving all right this episode's done let's let's break the next one you know i just i, I kind of get bored a little bit just just working on one script for years two more questions with ronald d moore i was going to ask you are we in the golden age of superhero movies but this is the only age of superhero movies are you sick of this <clears throat> I mean, maybe I'm I'm putting my sickness on you. Are you are you pooped out? Is this still an exciting time? Do you still think the genre of superheroes within the genre holds more potential, or do you think we've hit a formula? And anytime we've hit a formula, we're in a, a, a dicey place. I, I, I'm not bored with it yet. I mean, I, there's certainly a lot of it out there, but you know, it's just it's just a genre like any other, and you know. I think what you're probably expressing is, is uh, I would think, is a boredom with sort of the Marvel universe of it all, which dominates the landscape at the moment. So you're tapping into a particular flavor and style of superhero movie, which for the most part works really, really well. Yeah. I mean, it's, oh, yeah, it's yeah, pretty not, astonishing what they've what they've been able to do. And I'm not John Q. Public, but, so I'm not putting my you know, I'm, and I'm not putting myself above right. or below it. But I get your yeah, your your point. I mean, do you think Marvel is doing it optimally? And I only because as a writer with your ear, you know, and and um, can you if if you closed your eyes and didn't know any of the characters involved, could you tell a Marvel feature script from a DC feature script or? Is that insanity to suspect that? I think so. I mean, I think they have a distinct take on it. I mean, and I and I give them a lot of credit. I, I think that you know they do, there is variety within the Marvel brand. You know, I think that you know Guardians of the Galaxy is not the Avengers. You know, is not Spider Man, which yeah. I know is partially partly Sony. You know, and, and the Marvel TV shows are completely separate from that so there's a pretty wide variety within what they've been able to create in the marvel cinematic universe and the television product however i think if you watch wonder woman or you watch you know batman versus superman you get into a different place it's a different style and mood and piece so yeah i think you probably could tell the scripts apart you know and i think that dc is trying to to go at the genre from a very different angle and hopefully there's room for for that kind of competition in the marketplace and many more, you know, you would hope that people continue to add different colors and different, you know, uh, attributes into, into the, the superhero genre. Is, is it light versus dark? I mean, you know, the common wisdom on the street is Marvel has a sense of humor about their superhero scripts and DC does not. Is that too firm and black and white or do you feel there's something there? I, you know, it's a, that's a little simplistic. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's I get why people say that, um, but I think that's that's taking a little far. I think there's a lot of 
darkness in the Marvel universe. And there's a lot of wit and funny stuff in the DC universe, you know, but the press is kind of fastened onto that as the easy way to talk about it. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I'm one of the few people in the world that actually liked Batman versus Superman. I thought it was an interesting, moody piece. And I, I just told, you know, I, I didn't care for the ending, particularly with the giant with the giant fight. But my my particular pet peeve is just that each of these films has to end in a, a giant fight with people throwing each other through buildings. And I get I get tired of it at a certain <laughs> point. But that notwithstanding, I did enjoy the movie. The scope of the it. performances. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I liked Ben Affleck. I thought it was a great choice to be Batman. And, you know, I like Henry Cavell and his, his take on Man of Steel and all that. So I'm, I'm all right with that. Um, is it, is, and I think that the Marvel yeah. Universe has done interesting characters and, and great bits of casting as well. And, you know, they're not all happy-go-lucky, you know, silly people. I mean, I think that they have cer- certain tortured characters and darker plot lines and things that act that do move you as an, as an audience. Is there a superhero in the canon you'd like to take a spin at? You know, in the sense of forget if they approached you, but is there on 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 par with all the heroes, Marvel, DC, independent, what, ha- what have you, is there a superhero that you feel his or her backstory intrigues you from from afar that you've ever annotated in your mind? Oh, I you know, I was always a Batman fan growing up and just, I think he's perpetually fascinating to writers because of all the usual things you know he's he is a human character he's just a man who who takes on this this cow he's got this tragic backstory he's a darker character he seems to be you know, he's always pushing into vigilantism and you know and is driven by dark demons and his villains are fantastic you know the joker is one of the great arch villains of all time so yeah batman would always in in any uh, stage of my life, Batman would be fun to sit down and write a story for. I think the Joker would be a character even Shakespeare would have nodded to. I think he's one of the great characters in all of literature. Do you think TV struggles with superhero content? And I only say that because of this. When we're in a movie theater, we do suspend our disbelief in a different way. But when we're on TV, when we're watching TV, it seems harder to believe and care for people in capes and tights. You know, and Netflix does it well, but Netflix is not broadcast TV as such do you think tv still has places to develop superheroism on smaller screens or do you think it's in a trajectory of of value well i you know i it seems to be doing pretty well on tv i mean all the netflix series are doing well i mean then you've got the the dc ones like arrow and flash gotham it's working well Yeah, Gotham. So it's it's kind of hard. In a lot of the shows I don't watch, so I'm not sure really how to even uh, discuss them intelligently. It, it does feel like each of the TV shows has had to make an adjustment to, okay, what is the level of action and daring do that we're doing week to week to week, and how much is character? And TV always bends you towards more character and longer plot lines and you know getting inside different characters and and uh, developing your villains more. So I think probably if you went back and watched all the TV series at the beginning, you'd see them sort of, you know, bend towards that arc that they all probably start out with a lot of action, but then quickly realize that's really not what's bringing people uh, back week to week. And it's also really hard to do on a TV budget. So let's do more about character. And that always or tends to sort of make a better show and get uh, richer and more interesting characters. Well, th- that that question wasn't an appetizer, but now that we're in the zone, Star Wars Underworld is that real? Uh, and I only mentioned that because that would be. Well, t- it was. <laughs> it was once upon a time. <laughs> well, you know, it's still on your IMDb page. It's like right at the top. I don't know if you check that at all. But 2018, no. it says. I mean, but I, I guess my point I, is, do, do you think it would float? I mean, it's projected to be TV content. A, do you think it'll be done? B, do you think you'd want to see it? Well, it was done at a very different point in in the world. It was a point when right. George owned Lucasfilm, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. You know, and he wanted to do it. It was a completely George, you know, driven and George inspired piece. So George put us in, in you know, a group of writers together and we would gather periodically up at Skywalker and write these scripts and break them together and sit with George and laugh and argue and just be a writer's room. Uh, and then he t- we wrote like 48 some scripts. And then he said, OK, I'll get back to you guys. I'm going to see this is a very expensive show and I got to figure out how to produce it, where it's going to be and. And I'll let you guys know. And time passed, and like a year or two later, suddenly he sold the whole thing. So, and you can only, I can only speculate that 
as the reasons why he didn't move forward and whether they were tied into his eventual desire to to walk away from the whole thing or not. All I know is that it didn't move past that that point. Now, whether that would live potentially now, hard to say. I mean, we really did write those things with absolutely no eye towards production. I mean, George was adamant <laughs> on that point. He was like, yeah. I don't even want to hear about production. His producing partner, Rick McCallum, would sit at the end of the table and roll his eyes and, go, and put his hands in his head like, oh, my God. <laughs> but George didn't care. And George right, was like, right. we'll do anything. It's going to be the biggest show ever made on TV. Just let's just go crazy. And we did. So we wrote a very big show with lots of crazy stuff and big action, lots of aliens and alien planets and all kinds of stuff. So you should just publish whoever them. would want to take just... that on would really have to take a hard look at the scale in which we, we did that. Uh, but, you know, that notwithstanding, it was an interesting piece. I mean, it was an interesting slice of the Star Wars universe that was sort of unexpected and was not what, you know, most people would come to think of as Star Wars. And as such, it you know had the had at least the possibility of surprising people and taking them in a in a very different direction. Why don't they just publish the scripts? I think that would kick ass, man. Put um, them into a, a bound sure. compendium. You'd make kajillion do- a kajillion dollars. Not that Disney needs a kajillion, but would that be cool or bittersweet for you as one of the writers? It would probably be both. You know, then you'd suddenly you know writers never really intend to have their scripts published. You know, right. I've yeah. I've worked yeah. in. Uh, you know, in science fiction now to the point where my scripts have ended up on the public market and people have read them and talk about them, but you never really write it in that way. And sometimes you're always a little afraid that people are going to read them and cringe because they're really blueprints for production. You know, they're not novels. They're not meant to, you know, take the the reader on a, on a journey of the imagination. They're pretty like workmanlike in a lot of ways. He comes in the door and he does this, you know. So sometimes you're afraid your own prose is not going to hold up so well when it's held up to the light of day. You'd be surprised. Last question, Philip K. Dick. You know, to me, you're on to now one of the great progenitors of all moving imagery uh, works of art. I mean, he is one of the great unsung heroes of our modern age, and you're doing something really cool, The Electric Dreams, The World of Philip K. Dick. A, how cool, and congratulations. Um, B, the real question to end us today, because I know you, you're busy packing for Comic-Con, and very excited, I'm sure. Uh, would you would would you ever write a novel? And I'm not a novelization, because I think, you know, again, going back to the the. Bible, the show Bibles you've given birth to, and you're a fan of books. I mean, you're a fan of the Outlander series, obviously. Um, would you ever write a, a book, a novel, and a series of novels? Does that hold any interest for you? It does. And actually, years ago, I had an idea for a novel, and I decided I'm going to write this on the weekends in between my, my day job, and eventually <laughs> I'll have a, a book. And it was a surprising you know, experience, because... I'm used to being a screenwriter, you know, and yeah, yeah. I write m- multiple pages a day. A good day of writing for me on a first draft. If I can bang out 10 pages in a day, I've really done something. I feel proud of myself. And I can rewrite scripts rather quickly. And, you know, I, I sort of have a reputation as a relatively fast writer. So when I sat down that weekend to sort of start my novel, um, it was with an expectation that I'd get a few pages out that week and it'd be great. And I spent two solid days on page one because I suddenly realized what we were talking about a second ago, that this is not a blueprint. This is not a workmanlike document. That's just like telling people where to go and setting up actors. This is actually me talking directly to the reader and every word counts and establishing a voice of the piece and a mood. And what am I trying to say? Word words have a greater meaning, um, in prose than they do in uh, action description, you know, on, on a script. And I was really sort of stunned and realized, wow, this is a much different muscle. I haven't exercised this muscle in a very long time. And if I'm going to seriously write a book, I can't be doing a TV show at the same time. So I set it aside and realized that someday I do want to do this, but I need to have a dedicated block of time where that could be my complete focus, you know, that I can just yeah. immerse myself in that, you know, not just keep bouncing. Now I'm going to go back to the script, you know, and, and do that kind of thing. It's really interesting. It's sort of, you, you realize the quote unquote responsibility of it. And it's funny because you're a writer who speaks, you speak directly to fans. You, you don't back down from anything, which is really cool. But as you say, I love the fact that you're saying, Hey, you know, page one, 
the, the, the lenses are gone. These words, everyone is going to examine each word. It's a different musculature. But, you know, and, yeah. and I, I think you'd be amazing at it. But as you say, it, it doesn't, it can't be an advocation. It's got to be the thing itself. It's got to be the thing itself. Yeah. Hey, yeah. man, thank you so much. Uh, where, wherever you go, I, I know millions of listeners and readers will follow. I think you're just a great writer. Whatever you take on it, I, I tend to listen and watch it. So best of luck. And if we, maybe we can do this in person one day and sit down and chat some more. That'd be fun. I, I, I love being on, and this was a great, uh, it was great fun for me as well. Hey, Ron, take care. Uh, continued success, and we'll catch up with you again. Thanks a lot. Bye. That was funny. Uh, one thing that was rattling around in my head when he said um, a writer's goal is not to be have his work or her work published. Obviously, an author's goal is, but you know, having a screenwriter, if their goal, you know, a screenwriter having their screenplay published, it's kind of like framing a dollar bill. It's great, but that's not theoretically what it's built for. <laughs> More clunky metaphors on future episodes of Murmur. We want to thank Ronald D. Moore for being with us today. We want to thank you for being with us today. Every week, 2 p.m. live, whupfm.org. Evergreen, forever young, forever <laughs> murmuring, murmurradio.com, at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram, social, antisocial. Send us your murmur. We'd love to marry your idea or concept to one of our guests. We'll give you full credit. We won't leave you out. We won't do you like that. See ya.